podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I am your host tonight, Gavin. And I'm your co-host tonight, Elizabeth Muller. And we are joined with Vidya Ganesh Rangaranjan from the Earth and Planetary Science Department here at Western University. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Uh, how about you? We're good. Yeah, I think we're doing pretty good. Uh, so mm-hmm. you're work as a graduate student, you seem to have a very big focus on one planet in our solar system, and that is our neighboring red planet, Mars. Uh, so do you want to maybe quickly tell the audience uh, what is it, what it is your research is about? Okay, yeah. So Mars is actually host to a lot of active surface processes, very similar to Earth. So my, my research particularly focuses on trying to identify these processes and tracking them using uh, remote sensing images and uh, trying to basically understand what they entail to how the planet has evolved over time, either in the past or even the present um, scenario. And are these surface processes, uh, so I'm guessing you're referring to ones like um, wind, uh, looking at water, maybe something similar to what glaciers do on Earth? Um, Something like that, pretty much. So Active surface processes are not as limited on Mars as compared to Earth. There are a lot of active surface processes on Mars, which um, probably might include something like dunes, uh, which are common in Earth as well, gullies. And um, there are some processes that are like strictly seen only on Mars, uh, something like frosting and defrosting processes that we see on the poles, uh, formation of something called the spiders, which um, I think when they first detected it in uh, 2006 or 2007, when we had high resolution data sets, it was pretty startling because nobody had ever seen something like that before. So um, my research is particularly focused on what exactly are the agents that are causing these processes and um, how do they tell us something about um, what are the atmospheric components that are responsible for this. And um, this is, Kind of like critical because um, they help us probably help us predict what the atmosphere would be like um, in the future, especially when you have probably human landing missions or something like that on the surface. So uh, having a better idea of uh, what the current surface climate is on Mars gives us a better chance to predict what the climate might be when humans land in the future. And why are some of these surface processes unique? to Mars specifically? Um, The current understanding is that the Martian atmosphere is so very different as compared to Earth. Um, Particularly, it's rich in carbon dioxide. Almost about 97% of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. So um, very different from Earth is that most of these processes, even like frosting and defrosting, is governed by carbon dioxide frost instead of water ice frost that is commonly seen on Earth. So uh, since the chemicals that are responsible for all these processes are different, um, they, they sort of tend to have different surface expressions um, on Mars as well. Yeah, and I think you mentioned one of these surface expressions a moment ago. You called it in, was it a spiderus? Um, yeah. So can you quickly, um, I guess for the audience, quickly if you can describe what it is that would look like. Does it look like an actual spider on the surface of Mars? Okay, yeah. So it's, it's kind of very similar to that. What exactly happens is in the higher latitudes of Mars, um, during the 
winter seasons, um, frost actually gets accumulated on the surface and forms something called as dark spots. These are generally seen along dune fields, the northern polar dunes. And um, when it actually moves into the spring and summer seasons, these um, small dark spots, they um, tend to defrost and cause uh, lineations on the surface. Uh, they're not exactly spiders, but I mean, they look very much like spiders and people still don't know why they actually form in the first place. The current theories are like, probably it's just carbon dioxide frost getting deposited on the surface and it just gets sublimated later on when um, summer sets in, but it's, it's still uh, a topic of hot debate uh, right now. So you mentioned but, uh, something. Yeah, sure. You mentioned something really interesting, um, seasons, and I'd never thought about Mars having seasons. So, you know, what, um, what would be the average temperature during say a winter or a summer season in, on, on Mars? Uh, well, uh, the highest temperature, at least in the latitudes, uh, in the equatorial latitudes, is probably somewhere around 15 degrees Celsius. That's the maximum it can go, but never really goes that much. Um, the average temperatures roughly vary around minus 50 degrees in the summer, and it goes almost up to minus one, 150 to 200 degrees in the winters, uh, pretty much. The stark difference in seasons between Earth and Mars is its uh, longevity of the seasons itself. Now, as compared to Earth, the, Earth is, the orbit of Earth is almost circular. It's, it's nearly circular, but um, the orbit of Mars is way elliptical. So the prime difference is that there are some seasons which are extremely long, and there are the rest two seasons which are extremely short. So uh, like, on an average, say the northern spring and summer are almost about six months long, but uh, the winter and um, the northern winter and um, fall seasons are like somewhere around four months um, across. So there's this huge disparity in the length of each season that we see on Mars as compared to Earth. I'm guessing compared to Earth seasons, as you said, with the changes, um, with the complete difference in how long each season is, um, so um, since you've only mentioned, you've mentioned winter and summer, and I think you mentioned spring, but are they the only seasons that Mars has? Is it not as um, defined as the seasons that we have here on Earth? So yeah, the definition of seasons is um, relative actually in Mars, uh, because I mean, humans have not been on the surface to actually see and identify, okay, this is what is happening during the season. So it's more of a mathematical approach um, of the season itself. So we define seasons with something called as a solar longitude. Um, so that basically is dependent on the position of Mars on its orbit across the sun. Uh, so when it's farthest, um, generally, yeah, uh, when Mars is actually farthest, then we have the Northern summer, I mean, the transition between Northern spring and summer uh, roughly around 180 degrees of solar longitude. So how the seasons actually change on Mars is that zero degrees of solar longitude essentially means that Mars is entering into northern spring or uh, southern fall. And then um, every season changes at 180 degrees of solar longitude um, at different portions where Mars is along its orbit across the sun. So it's, it's more of a mathematical approach rather than uh, what changes we see on the surface um, of Mars, uh, the definition of seasons itself, yeah. 
And I think you touched on this before, but how, how long would a season say winter be on Mars? So it depends on uh, which hemisphere we are talking about. Um, the, northern, the northern hemisphere winters are pretty shorter. They are somewhere around four months uh, across. But the southern hemisphere uh, fall and winter seasons are almost around six, six months long. This is essentially because Mars is actually way far from the sun uh, during the southern fall and winter as compared to the northern fall and winter when it's really close by. Um, because the orbit of Mars is really elliptical as compared to Earth. Okay, okay, that is quite, quite interesting when I think a lot of people don't really realize that our planet's not the only one that has seasons. Yeah, maybe not. I did not know that. Learn something new. Yeah, maybe not the exact same since we have some that are lasting for six months, but I guess depending on, I know from the United Kingdom, we essentially have one season, which is just rain in fall, rain in, rain in the winter, rain in spring, and rain in the summer as well. So, but, but going back to, and you're talking about surface processes and active ones in particular. So how is it that you get to observe them? Do you get to look at data sets from orbit spacecrafts that are orbiting the planet? Yep, exactly. Um, so most of, uh, most of my work or any person who's doing active, active studies on Mars um, generally uses remote sensing data sets um, I think the first time active surface processes were keenly seen was, um, I think, in 2006, when we had high-resolution datasets for the first time from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Um, that was when features like gullies were first identified. People didn't know that like, geologic features like gullies existed on Mars until then. Uh, it was only known to have existed on Earth. But then uh, when they started getting repeat coverage over time, um, that is, um, say, they're trying to image the same region over and over again at different time periods in a Martian year. That is when they started to observe some changes between images. So they were quite reluctant to, um, say, attribute it towards the surface process in the initial phases. And the, um, they first predicted that probably there is flowing water on Mars that's actually causing these to happen. Um, but then that interpretation has changed a whole lot um, since we repeatedly got higher resolution data sets from different spacecrafts, um, not just the mass reconnaissance orbiter um, in the future. Now, currently, I think, uh, I mean, the research which I'm currently focusing on tries to use these mass reconnaissance orbiters as some sort of a background and um, focuses on active surface processes from much more recent data sets that we have, um, like from the ExoMars trace gas orbiter that was uh, just launched probably like four years ago. Um, so uh, that, that tends to provide us a hell of a lot, of, lot more information as compared to uh, what we knew about these active surface processes from these earlier data sets. So I'm interested to know a little bit about, in terms of your own research, what, um, what tools do you use to sort of analyze um, these surface processes on, on Mars? And, and how does that look, given that obviously we're not, at least in the foreseeable future, going physically to Mars? Could you tell us a little bit about that? So yeah, definitely. Um, my research does not uh, totally depend on a physical comparison approach. But I also use a technique called as remote sensing spectroscopy, wherein um, I'm trying to identify what agents are actually responsible for these processes to occur in the first place. Um, 
just simply comparing visual images might help us identify, okay, this is a region where change has actually occurred between a two, two specific timelines. But then uh, if you try to incorporate uh, spectral information into this entire change detection scenario, um, it also helps us to identify what exactly has changed between these two images. Is it, has the region become more mafic or um, do we actually see some signs of water rise or frost um, depending on the season in which that image was taken? So that some, somehow gives us some sort of an idea about what agent is responsible for the process itself. So yeah, um, that's and, and when you say agents, you, you are referring to like whether or not it could be like some sort of chemical or uh, including water and whatever state it might be on Mars and other types of substances? Yeah, absolutely. Um, specifically, if I'm focusing on gullies, um, Currently, there are like two contested theories about what, what agents could be responsible for formation of gullies in the first place. It's a huge debate uh, uh, with respect to if all these gullies are actually formed by carbon dioxide frost or water ice frost, because um, most of these gully deposits are particularly seen in the higher latitudes, the mid to higher latitudes of Mars, which um, have at least recently been proven to have uh, be host to potential subsurface ice deposits, um, at least um, at least for uh, some distances below the uh, surface right now. So uh, this is a hugely contested theory. Uh, initially, when they first detected gullies, it was, they just assumed that it could be because of actual flowing water. And uh, it became a huge discovery at that point of time when they first saw new deposits actually forming there. And especially because it's, it's so very difficult to separate out between uh, regions that are affected by water, ice, frost, or water in the first place, because they both form hydrated minerals all along the deposit um, of the gully itself. So um, yeah, it has been a challenge um, till now. And still, we don't have a clear cut answer as to what agents are responsible for uh, these gullies to form. So you mentioned there's a couple of theories that, that have been posited that look at what types of agents form gullies, but what are, what are your thoughts? What are you, what are you, what's your opinion? So um, yeah, until now, even I had agreed on the carbon dioxide frost theory, but uh, some of my research that I'm currently working on um, actually focuses on, from, focuses on some gullies that aren't necessarily formed by frost at all. Um, because um, the main difference that we actually found here was um, for any gullies that are formed by frost, they usually exhibit an IR signature um, in remote sensing data sets, um, simply because of um, the thousand nanometer absorption that water and uh, other hydrated minerals generally tend to have um, in their ferrous nature. Um, but then uh, we started seeing some gullies that were slightly yellowish in these remote sensing data sets, which we don't really have a clue uh, as to what exactly is causing these gullies to form in the first place. Um, currently, we think they might just be because of um, sand just getting deposited and accumulated at the top of the slope. And that's basically just causing some sort of a slope failure and allowing all this, um, all the huge amount of debris that is accumulated at the top of the slope to just fall down. Um, so 
currently i think yes most of the uh, bluish sort of gully deposits might be uh, due to carbon dioxide frost but it might not be the only agent that's responsible for all formation of gullies on mars and uh, so what do you think is um, missing in the spacecrafts and missions that are currently around Mars that's needed to be able to confirm what agent could be responsible? Or I'm guessing it's going to be until we can actually get there on the ground, we're never really going to know what's causing the formation of these gullies. Well, honestly, even if we get down to the ground, uh, it's going to be difficult because um, these active processes, although they are active, they do take, uh, they do have larger timelines of activity uh, in a way. They're not instantaneous. So most gullies are generally active. I mean, their active period is somewhere around four months or five months or something. So unless we actually stay the entire duration of uh, the gully formation, it's kind of difficult to ascertain uh, what might be causing that. Um, I think the, the basic limitation that we have right now is that um, in remote sensing data sets, I think it's always a trade-off between spatial and spectral resolution that you always have. The spectral resolution actually helps us determine what, um, what minerals are actually responsible for um, an active process to occur. But um, if you actually want to look at the feature at a higher resolution, you, you would have to trade off the spectral resolution here. Uh, so ideally, um, I think in the in the near future, we should definitely have a higher resolution, a higher spatial and spectral resolution sensor if it's, if it's humanely possible. Uh, and that will be um, probably the best sensor that will help us uh, detect these uh, agents that are responsible for these active surface processes. So what currently is the best spatial and spectral resolution? And if you don't mind, want to quickly what, so you quickly explain for the audience, what do you mean by spatial resolution and spectral resolution? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so spatial resolution uh, as such is the smallest size, um, the smallest area on the planet that is visible by a spacecraft or a, by a specific sensor for that matter. And spectral resolution is basically uh, the, is, is an equivalent of the number of bands that a sensor has. Um, that it can see the surface in. Um, currently, the best spatial resolution data set is the high-rise on uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that, that provides us images almost up to around 25 to 50 centimeters per pixel. But um, there's, a, there's a caveat to this though, especially when you're dealing with um, active surface processes, because these are not localized to smaller points or smaller regions on the surface. So um, because high-rise has such a large spatial resolution, it has a much smaller footprint or a much smaller swath uh, as compared to most other um, sensors that are available on Mars. Um, so um, it's not always possible to cover the entire region where change has occurred with high-rise. So to complement that, um, on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter itself, we have the CTX or the context imager um, that provides us a panchromatic information at around six meters uh, per, pixel, per pixel. Now, more recently, um, from the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, this is probably the best sensor that is available right now for seasonal and change detection um, studies because it provides us both color and um, panchromatic data sets at roughly around four meters per pixel. That is not really bad. Um, at least when you're trying to talk, 
when you're trying to identify large scale change detection uh, features here. So this, this has actually given it a huge edge over high rise in the recent past. And um, to be honest, high rise has been operating almost for um, 14 years now. So it is an aging sensor and there is a definite need to move towards a much newer sensor if you, if you need to continue uh, change monitoring processes because um, this is not time bound because there is change occurring on Mars almost every single day. So um, you do require regular time series observations from a particular sensor, at least in the near distant future. And what do you think is sort of holding, holding us back from moving to a, a new and more sophisticated sensor? Um, actually, um, it is not actually holding us back. Um, my research um, at Western here is actually trying to bridge the gap between high-rise and um, KISIS on the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter to sort of um, give a new method that blends into both, uh, using both data sets for such change detection processes in the future. Now, since uh, the trace gas orbiter has just been uh, giving us data uh, from the past two years, it is really difficult to have that sort of uh, a background, a regular background data sets to actually have, uh, to start tracking from, right? you need some sort of background from which you can compare images and then see, okay, this is where a change has occurred and have a regular monitoring sequence um, starting forward. Um, so I think nothing is holding us back right now. I think it's just beginning to, uh, people are just beginning to appreciate the uh, importance of color or the importance of spectral information in such uh, change detection campaigns. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking, I think since you mentioned Cassis, um, from the bio that you sent us, it said that you've actually gotten some hands-on experience working with the mission, which is currently ongoing and getting to learn more about how images will be acquired on the surface of Mars. So do you maybe want to quickly tell the audience a little bit about that experience? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I recently actually got a chance to plan uh, images for the Cassis orbiter uh, just early in December. So um, it, it gives us a huge opportunity for us to exactly target um, where, where you want an image and what are the image parameters um, that you necessarily want. Now, KSIS is basically a four band imaging sensor as compared to high-rise. Um, the, the huge advantage that KSIS provides over high-rise is that it has a much, much larger color swath as compared to high-rise. Uh, the narrow high-rise color strip just covers about 1.2 kilometers surface. As compared to high-rise, that covers roughly about six to eight kilometers on the surface. So it allows us to view a larger surface area in color. Now, this, um, this allows us huge flexibility as well during planning too, um, because it, it allows us to define um, which filters are required uh, for a specific image. Um, for example, if you have like a cool outcrop um, in a central uplift or something, wherein compositional information is really critical for us to understand how that feature has evolved, um, it allows us to capture that image in four colors, while uh, morphologic targets, like uh, if you're just trying to understand flow features or um, how impact melt has sort of like... Um, moved across the surface, you're trying to uh, estimate the boundaries of different surface units. 
uh, it allows us to cut back on um, the number of bands that are required. You can choose a three band combination or a two band combination in the sensor itself and provide a much wider uh, color coverage as compared to the narrow four, four color coverage um, that you generally have for uplets. And oh, for now. Audience, can, can you just explain a little bit about what bands are? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, bands are essentially different uh, spectral channels that are available on uh, a particular sensor. Um, that is um, like Kissy's has four bands, uh, the blue channel, the, red, uh, the pan channel, the red and the NIR channel. So what this means is it's, it's something similar to uh, a microscope that you have on the lab. Uh, it's just uh, a mini version of the microscope that you have on the satellite. So these are the four wavelengths in which uh, it can detect um, spectral reflectances or responses from the surface. And it can characterize and quantify them into some sort of a digital number that, that is basically an estimate of uh, how much, what is the brightness of the surface in each specific wavelength in that electromagnetic spectrum. And uh, when you mentioned, um, when you're looking at playing all these images, you mentioned changing it from narrow swaths, which I guess is the area that the camera can cover every time it's activated into a wider mm -hmm. swath. So what can you, what, so how narrow are we talking here? Um, okay, so yeah, uh, talking about pixels, um, say, if you, if you do really want all the four filters on a specific Cassis image, you really can't go above um, a filter width of somewhere around 14, 1400 pixels per channel, um, the filter width. But then if you only require two filter, I mean, two colors or three colors um, in an image, you can extend that filter width to almost up to around 2048 pixels for each filter. So that gives us a huge, uh, a distinctly wide color image as compared to uh, a very, very narrow four color image that you have uh, for other other regions. Okay, and uh, it's it's really cool that you get we get to hear that students are actually able to get hands-on experience in these like real uh, planetary missions because a lot of the time it's usually just a dream people think of. It's like oh I don't know if I ever be able to get ex to work on a mission that's actively going. And uh, since a lot of it sounds like a lot of your work involves just looking at images, processing them, and trying to understand what you what it's showing. So I'm guessing when we've been asking this a lot recently with um, COVID-19 keeping everyone at home and majority of the time off campus. So I guess for you, it's maybe it's not had as much as an impact since a lot of the, you just have to look at images and doesn't require any lab work. Yep, uh, actually that's <laughs> true. Uh, I have not been hugely impacted by COVID except the uh, mental uh, sort of impact that COVID has brought about, it has not hugely impacted uh, physically my research as such, because most of my work is dealing with remote sensing data sets. Uh, so I still have access to all these data sets right from my laptop. Um, so yes, it is not, it is not hugely impacted uh, my research as such. Yeah. And do you need a special software to access this kind of data? It sounds, it sounds like it would have to be um, quite sophisticated, I would imagine. Um, so yeah, uh, there are uh, certain encrypted software um, that are generally used for planning and for uh, downloading these datasets, uh, which are proprietary of uh, the mission specialists themselves. This is simply because um, KC's datasets are not uh, allow, I mean, are not available to the public just as yet. Um, so um, I mean, you don't really require a software to 
access and use them, you can still um, use them in general image processing softwares like ArcGIS or Envy for that matter. But to acquire and uh, to get the datasets and to download the datasets itself, you do require some special permissions. Um, that are usually the people uh, there at Burn uh, who actually develop the sensor they provide us. Okay, that's really cool, and um, I I think we all everyone here wishes the best of luck for your research. And unfortunately, we are just about to run out of time. So uh, before we go, um, do you have any social media or websites you'd like to shout out for the show? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I constantly keep um, posting on Twitter um, about various research um, advances that I that I've been having, and even uh, the planning missions um, that I've been a part of. So you can actually follow me on Twitter on uh, Vidya, at the rate Vidya Ganesh R93. Uh, let me just spell it for you. V-I-D-H-Y-A-G-A-N-E-S-H-R-9-3. Okay, we'll make sure to add that to the show notes for everyone to and make sure you everyone follows Vidya to learn more about uh, Cassis and surface processes on Mars. Uh, we, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Gavin Tolamedi, joined with Elizabeth Moeller as my co-host. We have been speaking with Vijay Ganesh Rangaranjan, who studies Earth and Planetary Science at Western University, and this episode was produced by REO Frame. If you'd like to learn more about the show or maybe become on as a guest, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. We are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can go on our website to find all of our episodes at gradcast.ca, or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.